Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, rather than discuss a specific project, my guests are a pair of industry veterans with stories to share. Let's go straight to introductions. First, J.R. Helton. You started in the film business in 1988, working as a set painter and scenic artist on such films as Lonesome Dove and Dazed and Confused. Your experience in the film industry informed your memoir, Below the Line, published in 1996. You're currently working as an author with five books under your belt, and you're an associate professor in the writing program at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Welcome to the other Below the Line. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's good. JR, glad you're here. Also with us today is Mike Taylor. Mike, you worked as a set lighting technician for more than 40 years before retiring in 2017. You started your blog, Blood, Sweat, and Tedium, Confessions of a Hollywood Juicer, in 2007, and you're still publishing today. Welcome. Uh, happy to be here, Skid. To open up, what intrigues me about the discussion we're about to have is that both of you are below-the-line industry veterans who have put your film experiences on the record, and that is less common than many of our listeners might think. Just up front, JR, tell us a little bit about your book. It's a little different. As I was a writer before I started working on uh, movies, and I had published a uh, short story in the Missouri Review. I was in good student at University of Texas at Austin. I was getting ready to go to grad school and trying to finish up my undergraduate degree. I think I was a senior at the time. And so kind of an accident that I fell into the, the carnival and the movie business when Lonesome Dove came to town. And so I was still writing throughout all of that time, throughout all of those movies. I was still working on my first novel, The Jugheads and uh, other books and short stories and things like that. And then I was also writing about my experiences while I was working on some of these shows. So it, it was sort of a natural thing for me to, because I write about, I write memoirs or autobiographical fiction, all right, but autobiographical. And so it was really a natural kind of thing for me to end up writing about uh, the industry itself after about, you know, 25 movies and uh, eight or nine years of working on it. And when I realized that, um, as I point out in the book, that I had gotten so sucked into the film industry that I wasn't really working as much of a writer anymore. I'd actually become uh, just another carny worker, I felt. <laughs> and I'd kind of lost my way in, in some ways, you know. So I, I ended up start writing the first chapter of Below the Line. We're going to talk more about those experiences. But first, Mike, what's your blog about? Uh, it's just a view of life below decks in the film, film and TV industry. I hadn't read much. I, there, I'd seen some. There's some, been some blogs online that I've turned turned on to, uh, totally unauthorized by a woman who goes by the name of Peggy Archer, set lighting tech. The LA Times did a piece on her, and I'd really I read that and I was really impressed. Didn't really think about doing a blog, but you know, one thing led to another, and here we are. Well, going back to those early days for both of you, give me a sense of how you got started in the film business, and uh, you know, kind of as you guys have both described it as a, a bit of a carnival, uh, what, what made you want to join this crew? Well, I was in college and I planned to be an environmental studies major and save the world, but uh, I wasn't too good at science. And uh, I was actually I was waiting in line to take a chemistry class to decide I better do this on a really hot October day. I had a broken leg from a motorcycle wreck, so I'm on crutches. And the line went on for about an hour. And finally, a TA came out and said, well, there's too many students here. We're going to blah, blah, blah. I said, fuck it. I'd taken a film class the season, the quarter before, just on a whim. I said, screw it. I'll major in film. So I did. And then once I got out of school, what do you do with that? <laughs> and after uh, 
stalling for a few years, uh, post-collegiate years, working in pizza places and delis. I hopped on a motorcycle and rode to L.A. and um, got into the business. Uh, I'm curious, Mike, did you, when you say you got into the business, did you, did you know somebody already? Uh, did you have a contact or did you just, uh, how did you go up and get on a movie? Because that's a question that a lot of my uh, college students ask me. That's the hardest step. I mean, once you, right. once you break through, everything else kind of flows naturally. Right. But right. I, did, I did have a contact. One of my film, uh, we didn't have any film professors in my college, but there were two lecturers young guys who were passionate and really good communicators about film. One of them moved to LA. He got a job in uh, publicity for the local PBS station. That PBS station was co-producing a 16 millimeter feature, which you know means lower than a low budget. Right. And you know, I was in LA, I'd been there for three months. I didn't know what to do. I was running out of money. <laughs> and he said, well, call this guy. It might give you a job. They probably won't pay you. You know, you'll get lunch and gas money. So I did. They hired me cause I was no money. And, uh, I was a PA doing everything PAs do, production assistant. And right. after a couple of weeks, they, they said, hey, do you want to be an assistant editor? Because they were losing people. We'll pay you 50 bucks a week. Sure. So I left the set and joined with the editor for a while. And uh, my first paycheck was $43.77. I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that led to everything else. I met a gaffer on that show. Right. I got one of my buddies into the show when I moved up to be assistant editor. My buddy worked, worked with that gaffer. We've all worked together for many years after that. It's just kind of like the roots of a tree. Breaking in is the hardest part. Once you get the first step and you meet some people and they realize you're for real and you're committed and you're going to work hard, it all right. kind of happens. And you make yourself, uh, as I tell my students, you have to make yourself indispensable, really, in a way, you know, on this set. You, you show them their value. So if you start as an intern or something like that, you do have a chance of, in many instances, of I've seen someone who started for free is paid within a week or so sometimes on movie, just because they were a, a good hustler and they made themselves uh, indispensable and were a good worker. It also is so true. You're when you talk, I mean, networking is a um, cliche term, but it really is what the industry is about. The, the film industry in so many ways is such a small business and it's so much about the friends that you make and the people that you get to know. Once I got in the pipeline in Texas, I met people all throughout the entire the film industry, right? And then you just, at some point they start, as happened to me too, they start calling you. Okay, another, another factor is just that people like to work with people they like, they enjoy working with. People who are pleasant, they aren't assholes, they don't have attitudes, they don't have sharp elbows. You're spending long hours on set with these people. And if they're not pleasant to be around, if you're not pleasant to be around, they won't be around and you won't be around. And that, that's kind of how it works. It helps if you know what you're doing. But the thing is, you can learn the job. It's harder to learn to be a decent person or someone people like to be around. You kind of either have that or you don't. JR, back to you. Similarly, how did you get started on Lonesome Duff? I had a bigger in, in a way, in that, um, and I don't want to name too many names just because some of these people are still in, very much involved in the industry. But through someone that I um, was married to, she knew the executive producer of a big film coming in town and, and was friends with a big writer in Austin. And when the movie came into town, I was like, you should try to use your, you know, she, she didn't like, she did, she hated her job, but I didn't like, I was painting dorm rooms at UT and going to school. And she was able to contact obviously somebody above the line. She ended up getting a very low end job as an art department coordinator, which is like the secretary for the, you know, 
but that was like 350 bucks a week or something. You know, it was, it was at the time it was more than she was making before. And then she told me, she said, Hey, the head scenic artist, he said he needs a guy who can paint, but he also needs a guy who can draw. And he wants somebody who's got half a brain too. And, I, and she was like, you sound perfect for it. You know, you want to go talk to him? And I was like, yeah, you know, and basically I, he and I hit it off. He hired me right there on the spot. And what really, and I was hesitant, but what really convinced me is they said, he said, I'll pay you $900 a week and we're going to give you a hotel and per diem coming from the hard, you know, really kind of hard ass world of construction that I'd been working in for years. Plus that was what I was making a month painting dorm rooms. Yeah at UT Austin. Okay. So to suddenly get an offer for that much money. And then also to go out and we were on the Moody ranch, this 50,000 acre ranch. And to, I don't know, what was I 25 years old, something like that, you know? So I quit college. This was like, ah, you know, <laughs> screw that. And I ran off and basically joined the, the circus in and the movie Lonesome Dove is actually not very much I don't say that much about it in my book. And I think that's because I had such a good time on it. My first movie was so much fun. And because of my connections that I had in, in it with somebody above who knew people above the line, I was able to stay on the movie all the way to the very end. In fact, also, I made very good friends with Kerry White, who's a great production designer. He's one of the few people that I said really nice things about him below the line. because <laughs> He's a genuinely nice person. And, and Kerry White was my patron for a long, long time on a lot of movies. And he really encouraged me. He, he, he had me to be his onset painter uh, when the lead scenic left and wanted to keep me on. And, and so there was that personal connection. I mean, I just immediately wanted to work on another film after that. I, I went ahead and traveled across the entire country and went to the uh, the DG Studios, Dino De Interest. It was out of Wilmington, where they make a lot of movies. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I went out there to work on a movie called The Von Metz Incident, uh, which ended up being called Loose Cannons, starring uh, Gene Hackman and Dan Aykroyd. You know, brilliant comedy pairing there. And, uh, <laughs> and it was just, you know, it was a tri-star picture, big budget, poorly received and dumb movie. And it was on that second movie that I really saw a huge difference in what it was to work, because I was working, suddenly I was working as a local. I was putting myself up. I was eager to work on another film, you know, and um, we had to punch in, you know, in those studios, you had to punch in. It was, you know, it was grim. It was really Grimsville. You had to, you had to punch in at, you know, like 630 in the morning and we were working, you know, 14 hour days. And sometimes we do two weeks straight and stuff like that. And we were working in these grim studios with unsafe conditions, really nasty chemicals as painters, you know, that you're working with. And so it only took my my second movie. Uh, it all kind of my my fantasies kind of. I got a dose of the real world there. What it was really like, you know. It's a great pair of stories. The book ends right there. It's like yeah. it, it's really great. It's really fucky. You know? uh, yeah, yeah. Mike, similarly, did you see both sides or the full picture of the industry when you were starting out, or well, a little bit of, of both. I remember uh, when they uh, bumped me up to assistant editor, I was no longer on set. So I'm in the office all the time. And after about three or four weeks, the crew came back and there was a big meeting. There was a lot of tension because they were working really long hours. They weren't getting paid much at all. I mean, the gaffer was making 400 bucks a week, which wasn't much even back then. That's a department head. And one of the grips got very emotional at this meeting. And the director goes, 
I'm not an animal. <laughs> I mean, it's like a line out of a movie. I mean, he's, and he said it with total passion. And, you know, the director said, fine, I'll give you all points in the movie. We all got a point, which is totally useless or something like that. But it calmed the waters. So I saw it wasn't always sweetness and light, but I still was totally, totally bought in. And it wasn't, I wasn't until I think the next movie or a couple of movies later, I finally got hired as a grip. And our first day was on a beach. And I thought, oh, man working on a beach. This is great. And it was the beach where they made the Rockford Files out of Paradise Cove. This is, I love that show. This is going to be a great day. Well, 16 hours later, after carrying a 400-pound dolly through the sand back and forth, sunburned like a lobster, I was just beat to death. I realized this is not quite what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so we all got our lessons. Yeah, but I, I was still into it. You know, It took a few more years before yeah. I got more cynical. Yeah. And I think you might, might have different experience also because uh, this was a big theme in Below the Line. I was trying to stay in Texas. After that terrible experience in Wilmington, I was determined to try to stay home and work as a local in Texas. And so I was really having to hustle. Yeah, if I could say so myself, I was a pretty good hustler. I really, you know, I would, I'd have the phone number of the construction coordinator, production designer. I'd, I was like, calling them as they're checking into their hotel room and stuff. You know, I was really on top of trying to get work and I did get work. I got work all the time and I wasn't very discriminating. I would work on, you know, whoever paid me the most and what was usually closest to, to wherever I lived at the time. And I turned down, like I turned down a, a perfect world, a Clint Eastwood movie to do some, you know, like I think it was some Hallmark <laughs> movie of the week or something, but I was, you know, they offered me a lot more money, you know, on the, yeah. the TV movie. So I, you know, as I say in Below the Line, I saw a lot of my, in the beginning when I was first starting, it was mainly, mainly, mainly just an Austin crowd. A lot of people in Austin working on movies. And I would see my friends down at the unemployment. There would be long dry spells, you know, and we would have to, and, and usually you would maybe only be on for like, you know, a couple of weeks on unemployment or something. And then, a, and then sure enough, a show would come through and we would all, would all try to jump on it as soon as we could. Now that began to change as they more and more movies were being made in Texas. Okay. They, they started bringing more and more and it got easier. You still had to hustle, but it did get easier to get work versus people that I know that still work in the business in Los Angeles or in Atlanta or in New York who are in the unions and they had the options of being day players and different things like that, that we just didn't have yeah. in Texas. That's right, because you've got a couple of productions going on, but it's not a hub, or at least wasn't right. at the time. Yeah, a mutual friend of, of Mike and mine, you know, he, he does the biggest features that are made right now. But uh, I remember when he was in L.A. that he, a lot of times he would pick up really good work for, you know, like, a couple of weeks on, a, you know, James Cameron's new film or something like that. You know, it was, you could do those, you can do those kinds of things if you're in New York or Los Angeles. And uh, at the time in Austin, that wasn't an option. And I don't even really, I doubt that it is now even. Uh, uh, yeah. Day playing is actually kind of fun because you get called in, you can't have no obligations. I mean, you do a good job, but you get to see people you haven't seen for a while. You work two or three days or a week or two, and then you're done and you don't have the long-term commitment, you know, and, in between your regular gigs, it's really kind of a nice way to go. Another reason why people thought I was crazy when I wrote Below the Line, I became pretty much the main lead scenic of Texas. And I could say that with confidence. And, uh, you know, <laughs> even though it wasn't very high up, obviously, I'm not trying to inflate my oh. position in the hierarchy, obviously, right? But you know what it means to have a crew and 
to have responsibility. And suddenly it became less fun as well in that regard when I had, you know, 10 guys working for me and a hundred sets on a piece of crap. The third installment of Heaven and Hell, the mini series about the Civil War that they couldn't even get Patrick Swayze to do a cameo in. And with, you know, 100 sets from the Civil War and you've, you know, you're only a week ahead of the shooting crew and just really hard grinding TV uh, stuff, you know, or uh, a feature as well. A lot of times at the end there, a big key lead scenic would come in. My last two movies weren't even in the book, Courage Under Fire, which is a big film. Denzel Washington and Meg Ryan at the time. And then uh, Michael, a Nora Ephron film. John Travolta was the biggest star in the country. And what would happen is the lead scenic would come into town and he would call me. And basically I would become his scenic foreman and, and do everything pretty much, you know, do as much as possible of their job for them. I'd make good money. I'd get half of what they were making because they were in the union in either Chicago or New York or Los Angeles. But I didn't have any complaints, really, because I was being compensated well for it. My biggest complaint, again, though, was that I had to work as a local, you know, and a lot of movies were filming in Austin. And I, I didn't live in Austin. I had moved to a ranch about an hour and a half away from Austin for many of the movies that I worked on. So, for instance, on the movie Days to Confuse, I, I spent that whole movie crashed on friends' floors in people's houses, you know, and uh, are trying to make the three and a half hour round trip to Austin, which that makes a a 12 hour day, six days a week, even harder. And that's one of the things I was really particularly angry about when I wrote Below the Line. It wasn't, it's not a sour grapes book, but I was angry about the way I felt we were being taken advantage of by production managers who um, would try to argue with me over my gas receipts and being excessively petty or, or not rent my vehicle or, you know, not different things like yeah. that. Wasn't one of the reasons I wanted to get out too is because I wasn't making as much money. You know, when you have, when you have to put yourself up in a hotel, you know, for weeks or a condo and, you know, and they're not renting your vehicle and you're doing all kinds of, you know, then it really eats into your budget. You had reason to be angry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, JR, let's then pivot and talk about the decision to write the book. It is very illuminating. I think a full picture of what people experience on film sets, the good and the bad. You were a writer before and obviously gathering these experiences. So it kind of, but the decision to actually write the book. That that was kind of also accidental, fortuitous kind of thing in that I was working on a mini series based on James Mr. Book called Texas. And it was produced by Aaron Spelling. And it's the movie that I go into most detail on in Below the Line towards the end of the book. And the reason I do is I wanted everybody to get a true feeling of what a disastrous production can be. And how when you have poor decision making from the top to the bottom and just disorganization and also in defense of some of the people that I was working for, they had a very short pre-production schedule as well. But I ran into an old writer friend of mine named Jan Reed, who was an editor and a great journalist with uh, Texas Monthly. I ran into him in Brackenville, Texas, where Happy Shahan had built the Alamo for John Wayne's The Alamo, where I was working on like my third movie in this old Western town that was falling apart. And Jan Jan knew me as a writer more than anything. And he asked me about my writing and it just hit me like a a hammer in my stomach because all I was doing was complaining to him about my production designer and the art director he'd hired and just all of the minutiae. And I realized I'd become part of this. I wasn't really working as a writer anymore. 
he, he was cracking up, by the way. And he said, you should write that down as an article, send it to me and maybe we'll get it published and I'll send it to somebody at Texas Monthly. So I did. And the first chapter of Below the Line was actually an article that I wrote for Texas Monthly. They sent that, Jan, because I had this friend who was an editor there, he sent it to Evan Smith. He's still a big editor here in Texas, but he was a a senior editor or something at, at the time. And he liked it. He liked the piece, but I believe the chief editor uh, named Gregory Curtis, he killed it because they were about to do a Lonesome Dove issue. All right. It was the beginning of the canonization of Lonesome Dove, uh, which as much as I enjoyed that film and, you know, and, and all that, and I'm proud of my work on it, you know, but it really went overboard, I think, with some of the, the worship of that film. So they didn't want my cynical take on the business. So my friend Jan said, well, why don't you send it to the Austin Chronicle? And that was being edited by this guy named Lewis Black. And I'm more than happy to name him on this story. He hated it. He was furious. He wrote me back a very angry letter. He said, we don't publish this kind of crap. And, and as wow. it turned out, he was really trying to push Austin and that time, uh, this is, you know, around uh, 94, 95, after Days Confused had been made, right? And so he was really pushing guys like Richard Linklater and Rodriguez. And in other words, he was at, I felt that he was acting kind of like as a booster for the film industry as well. So he actually took personal offense. He, he got so mad that when I published the first edition of Low Line, he showed up and sandbagged me on some radio show that I was doing. He was, I didn't even know he was going to be a guest on it and started getting mad at me on air because I didn't like Pulp Fiction as much as he did when it had come out. He, you know, he, he, he really took offense at my opinions on movies. So anyway, the long story short, I was so pissed off that these two, <laughs> that these two magazines both killed my story that I realized if you think that first nice chapter was, <laughs> if that offended you, I've actually got a lot more to say. I have a much more to say. And I sat down and it just flowed out of me. I wrote a whole book in six weeks of between working on movies. I had much more to say. So that, I, I have to credit those guys for, for shooting me down. Uh, it, it made me write the book. <laughs> That's good. Mike, what drove you to start your blog in 2007? I've been writing just for my, my own sake. I, I started a, uh, wrote an LA detective novel from like 1990 to 2005. It took me a long time. And so I was into writing, but you know, I was just doing it uh, on my own. So I was kind of wanting to write something about the business. But what spurred me was uh, I finally got into sitcoms, which is where the old men go when they can't do the hard work anymore. And uh, I was doing one for NBC and called Good Morning Miami. And my hometown San Francisco film critic, who was a really good writer, just a, a scalding thrower of, of, of lightning bolts, uh, just ripped the hell out of it. So I sent him an email and said, man, you're, you're putting you in the ship that I'm writing on. You're, you're killing me here. You know? And we got into him back and forth. Apparently, he thought I was a writer on the show. And at some point, I let him know I wasn't. And he was like, oh. So when he uh, had a chance to edit a little uh, section of the entertainment Sunday paper, he said, I want to have some people uh, write pieces about the business. So why don't you write one for me? And I did. And it got in the paper. My only uh, uh, non-blog published uh, piece of writing. Then he said he's going to start his own blog. So maybe I could write some more. And I wrote up three more. Then he changed his mind. So I had three posts. Figured, well, hell, I'll start a blog and I'll write three or four and that'll be it. And one thing led to another again. And once I've tapped into that vein, kind of like JR said, the stuff starts flowing out. The stories start coming and uh, it gets easier and it gets better. And now it's what, 13 years later. I've slowed way down. I just do one a month now and I'm 
you know, trying to turn the blog into a book, basically. But that's how it started. I've encouraged Mike for years since I discovered his blog to please turn it into a book, whether he decides to name names or not. I don't, I don't know. If, I, don't, I don't even know if that would necessarily uh, matter uh, because I think he did such a good job in his writings, his posts. I think of them as a mini essay or mini chapters for a book. I don't even think you'd have to name names. I was purposefully naming names and below the line. And that was actually a real breakthrough for me in writing that book. Because when I first started, after I wrote that first chapter as an article, every time I tried to write about the film business, I had to change so many people's names. And that was the breakthrough for me. After I wrote that article, I was like, screw it. I'm going to use every, it's a name game and I'm going to use everybody's real names, you know, and I really didn't think about that at the time. I didn't think about the implications of it so much, you know, because there's some people that, in fact, there's a couple people that were were I to publish it again, I, I might change their names just because they come out particularly bad, but they weren't any worse than any number of other people. Uh, they just happened to be the closest people to me. I would might maybe change a few of those names, but it's such a name game from the actors to everybody that you know that it was, it's hard not to name everybody. And of course, that's what gets you, that's the difference between writing this book and not is that that's what gets you out of the business. You know, yeah. everybody has, you know, the film business is famous for having great stories, but you can't tell them. It's like the movie Wag the Dog. That's a great movie, Wag the Dog, where uh, all Dustin Hoffman, all his character wants at the end of the movie from De Niro is, I've got to be able to tell the stories of, of this. <laughs> and and they end up, you know, killing him. They assassinate, they're like, no, because yeah, it's a deal breaker for him. He wants to be able to tell the stories about it, about what happened, you know? So I was really purposefully trying to also name names to try to write myself out of the, to force myself not to take any more shows. And even after I published, uh, published that first edition in 96, I still got a job. I got a job on <laughs> Selena uh, as the lead scenic. They found, they came out to the dog ranch, Kerry White and the construction coordinator and Dave Will, and they found me on this, out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and offered me, you know, money that I needed. And I said, yeah, but then I, I put my second in charge and I told Carrie, I said, hey, I've got this book coming out and I feel like a total hypocrite doing this. And also it's going to piss a lot of people off. I was even selling below the line t-shirts. There's still some people who have those uh, years later. <laughs> and so there were people walking around wearing below the line t-shirts that I, you know, maybe not said the nicest things about them uh, in the book. So that, you know, it was... Uh, it was awkward. And, and I should mention, too, that that first edition, I had a lot of agents interested because I like I said, I was a writer and I was trying to sell my novel and stuff. You know, I was trying to sell the Jugheads and other books. But all these agents, what they wanted was below the line. They wanted this and they wanted movie star gossip. They wanted to know who was sleeping with who, who was taking drugs and who was, you know, they wanted all that, the kind of crap that you that you write in a tell all a different kind of book. And I had a lot of problems with these agents. So some friends of mine basically formed our own press. This was before, you know, the internet was everywhere. Uh, some of my buddies in the art department, we just put the, our money together and we self-published uh, the first edition of Below the Line. And we had no idea it was gonna, it sold out. We sold like 1,500, 2,000, we sold all of our copies. And we had a really good distributor in the Samuel French trade, which used to distribute movie books out of Los Angeles, I believe. Yeah. And they got mm-hmm. furious at me because they called me on the phone. They were like, 
is this Agarita Press? You know, and I'm out in this, you know, barn trailer in the country. I'm, yeah, this is Agarita Press. Like, we need, we need 2000 more copies right now. And I was like, you know, I didn't have $40 to my name. I was like, well, that's going to take a while. You know? And so we ended up maybe getting them a thousand more copies, but because it, it was distributed well, uh, a film director named Terry Zweigoff found the book and he had just made the movie Crumb. And then his friend, Robert Crumb, was in San Francisco visiting him. They both read Below the Line in 96, 97. And then Robert Crumb painted a cover for it. And Terry called me out of the blue and he tracked me down also. And basically those two guys are the reason that the book got republished in 2000 in a second edition from Last Gas. Uh, books with a new Robert Crumb cover and Robert Crumb and I became very good friends after that and we've been writing each other letters for over 20 years and he's painted four covers for my books now but all of that came about because we had uh we didn't I didn't want to go with what these agents and these publishers wanted I wanted to publish it the way I wanted to and it turned out to be the right I think the right decision although to this day a, a lot of the agents they don't they don't get it they they still want the movie star gossip kind of stuff they don't want to just know about how the industry really is working it's notable you do mention movie stars in the book but yeah. it's all about their interactions with crew you're sympathetic to the stars in in many cases and what they have to go through in that but it's really about how it affects the crew and and what the crew is going through on a day-to-day basis that's the the real meat of the book yeah thank you for saying that's good because there are a couple of scenes in the book where, especially around dennis quaid one of the I think one of the better sections of the book is about the movie Flesh and Bone. I say at one point, because I see the way Dennis Quaid, who's, who's ironically from, but my brother-in-law went to high school with him, him and Randy in Bel Air High School in Houston, Texas. So ironically, he's from Texas. And yet when we were filming out in West Texas, these people are like, look at those Hollywood movie stars. You know, they're just, you know, he's such a snob. He won't even talk to us, you know, in this bar that, that, that we'd rented for the night, you know. And he's doing, you know, night shoots where he's having to run out under fake rain, under fire hoses at three o'clock in the morning with, you know, freezing cold weather. And, you know, but they're mad at him because he's not stopping to chat with them. Or, as I said, in some instances, you know, a star can be incredibly inconvenienced, you know, if they do stop to talk and people want, you know, even more from them, you know. As I said in Below the Line, to me, the, the only solution was to avoid people at all costs. If I was an actor, stay away from them. Mike, I want to turn back to you and talk about the blog for a minute. I haven't read all of the posts. As you said, it's been on, you've been blogging for, for some time now. But I have noticed that I don't get a lot of names or specific projects on the ones I've read. I made the mistake. Maybe it was a mistake. I don't know. Putting my name on the blog right from the beginning. So I had to be careful what I said. And as I put in the, the very introductory post, I really wasn't interested, just as JR was talking about, I didn't want to be telling trash tales, you know, I mean, tabloid bullshit. It doesn't interest me. And it, I didn't want to disseminate that stuff. I just wanted to tell the stories of life below decks and how it really is, you know, the humor and the, the pain and everything and the bonding that goes on. Because when people suffer together like that, as both you guys know, it forms tight bonds in a hurry sort of similar to what military guys go through only, you know, without the killing for the most part. <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, we've all seen death on set, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, I know you have Jr. and so have I, and it's not, it's not yeah. good. Well, the line I, I, we, our producer, Mark Rosenberg, um, tragically uh, he was dying right in front of us. Uh, unfortunately, he was, he was a very uh, heavy set fellow and he was choking on, um, 
his breakfast, basically at the breakfast wagon there. This was in the middle of nowhere in West Texas. And he ended up having a heart attack or passing away on the way to hospital in the ambulance. And then they stopped shooting. I remember the second AD March came by and she said, um, Mark Rosenberg just died. Uh, Steve can't, and Steve, Steve Clovis and Mac Brown were obviously both friends with Rosenberg. Steve, um, the director that moved. Steve, yeah, the director. Steve Clovis was the director. Yeah. And Philippe Rousseau was the DP who was a really great DP that I had to, a really good time working for him, a total professional. I had a lot of fun on that movie because I was the standby painter also. And I was right close to the triumvirate around the camera. And I just really enjoyed uh, working with those individuals. Steve was a very nice director too. Anyway, but they said, Steve can't go on today, obviously. And and then I have a scene in my book, which is true, where my friend and I talk and I say, what do you think? Because he had, he had worked on a lot more movies than me. And I say, what do you think is going to happen? You know, do you, I mean, our producer just... And, you know, he said, oh, we'll be back to work tomorrow. You know, they'll, they'll give us half a day off today and then we'll go back to work. And everything, they'll say something like, you know, this is what Mark would have really wanted. And it probably would have been. And we'll all, and I was like, yeah, but half a day. We're going to just take off half a day when one of somebody dies, you know. And, and my friend Scott was like, hey, how long, how long do you think they take off if if you died on the set <laughs> or if if, you know, an electrician died, you know, and I said, yeah, they'd probably say, get that dead grip out of here, you know, and let's, let's get the shot up. And we did go back to work the next day. I get it. You know, you've got that much money on the line uh, every day. What are you, what are you going to do? Built a machine to make yeah. this thing and do you yeah. stop it dead for three weeks? I mean, what do you do? Yeah, you it's know? a juggernaut. And, you know, we were trying to finish up shooting before Christmas as well. I remember the frustration that uh, Mac Brown had trying to just finish this film and, uh, I have a scene where uh, I think some of the, the grips or uh, somebody was complaining about a third meal penalty or something like that. And I remember watching him really just get, he just had it, you know, his, his friend and producer died. He, in my opinion, he'd been very generous with the crew. He'd, you know, hauled guys motorcycles around out to West Texas so they could drive them around. And, you know, when they weren't working and, and here's, you know, right at the very end, people are bitching about a, a, a meal penalty or something. So I tried to show, even though I definitely complain about UPMs and line producers and things like in the book, I, I tried to show as much as I could from different perspectives. Well, I'm curious for both of you what the consequences have been for breaking the cone of silence. JR, I guess the question to you is, did publishing the book manage to actually get you out of the industry? Although you said you actually did a no, couple I, of films still. Yeah, but. I, yeah I, no, I failed completely. I, I, <laughs> I, well, it got me out as far as working in the film business in Austin. If I went to, there, there was a time though, a few years later, where when it came out in the second edition, there was a whole new group of younger people that had come into. And I had a friend tell me, she, she said, uh, I don't know if I'd want to come back, right? There's a, you could probably fill a pretty good sized room with people who want to kick your ass right now. <laughs> and uh, a lot of it was for different reasons. There were people I didn't even know, or there were people mad at me, ironically later, because I didn't put them in the book. Or because <laughs> I had one carpenter who was upset with me because he was like, well, I worked on that movie and I, you know, I didn't remember it that way. And I was like, well, tell him to write his own book. You know, this is my <laughs> personal deal, you know, and so it worked in that respect and that it, it forced me to go back to graduate school, finish my degree. Although, ironically, I finished my undergrad degree and I was so broke. I, I went back and worked on movies for several more years. But after I wrote that, I, like I said, I, I left out the last two movies and I was using the money from that to get back into grad school. I got my MFA and uh, to become a college professor, which was um, closer to being a writer. And But it didn't really... 
I even got a promotion really because Wygoff offered me a job as his when he was making Ghost World uh, because we'd become friends. And, you know, when the director of the film and I are talking to each other constantly, you know, as he's making the movie and he's he had his uh, production designer. He called me and said, I can get you a job as the head scenic, maybe assistant art, you know, assistant art director, you know, give you a title. Because I was like, I don't want to just be a scenic again if I'm going to do this. So it actually would have been a promotion to assistant <laughs> art director. But I got nauseous just talking to him on the phone. He's a super nice guy. But just thinking about going back into all of that, just from the way he was talking, I knew because I know what it means to be a professional and what, what it what it takes of you to actually really to do your job, you know, and I and I considered myself one and I suddenly got just this wave of nausea. like, Oh, wow, this is if I accept this, I got to go out to L.A. I got to jump back on this train. And so I said no. And I remember Robert Crumb wrote me a letter. And he said, Helton, you were very, very wise to turn down that job on Terry's Wildhouse film. That was a very smart move on your part. And keep, you need to keep writing. Robert really became a, a true sort of second mentor to me and really helped me a lot when he came along in my life. He was the first writer that I'd met, first artist that I'd met that I could really respect. Publishing that book, and then republishing helped me become a writer even more. So although I did continue to try to work above the line, I foolishly wrote some screenplays for free. I was flown out to L.A. even back in 2006 and got the, you know, and they put me up in the hotel on Sunset Boulevard. And, you know, I met some producers and we were and these were all real people. This is serious. This couldn't be a movie. And but I, I hadn't been paid yet, you know, and uh the director and I were already arguing about the script and he hadn't even <laughs> finished it. And in 2006, I was pretty much like, all right, I'm going to quit trying to put it this way. I was like, I'm never going to write another free screenplay uh, again. <laughs> that's a wise uh, that, decision. <laughs> that, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So that's when I really stopped doing that and just concentrate on my books. Mike, have you gotten a lot of attention at the blog? I mean, have there been consequences for you, even if you're not using names that folks know it's you and maybe they recognize themselves? Not really. I mean, because when I was ripping something, a show or people, I, I made sure that I didn't identify anyone and just kind of trying to tell stories that everyone could relate to, everyone on the crew could relate to. But basically, I don't think a lot of people in our industry read. I mean, very few people that I worked with even knew about the blog. And once a still photographer came up and said, are you Mike Taylor? You, you're the Hollywood juicer. And I was like, yeah, he was a fan. I was kind of shocked at that. The rest of the crew stood looking like, what? What are you talking about? You know, they just, you know, they have other things to do in life. And they weren't on the Internet that, you know, they weren't paying attention. So it really has had no effect at all on me. I, I can tell you a quick uh, celebrity story related to my baby. <laughs> the actress Sandra Bullock moved to Texas. I don't know if she still lives in Texas, but she a while back, she lived in Texas. And after not long after, I think the first edition of Below the Line came out. And one of my old scenic seconds or something was a, was the onset painter of this film that she was in. I don't I don't know what it, I can't even remember what it was called. I think it might have been Hope Floats or something. I don't know. And she turned around to him and she said, hey, you're not going to write a book about me or anything like that. <laughs> that other painter did. She didn't, she, didn't know, she didn't know my name, I don't think. Like, you're not going to write a book about me like that other painter did. Like, no, 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 I don't even know that guy. <laughs> the cover that Crumb did for you for your second edition of Below the Line, 
perfectly encapsulates everything that goes into working on set. I mean, I've never seen a better picture. Thanks, man. I have to agree. That's when I, the first letter I wrote to him, I was like, man, you totally captured the way I was feeling. That's exactly <laughs> even what the people look like that were berating me and trying to humiliate me and crush me on that film. And it, the hot sun beating down on you know, in this cheesy Western town. I mean, he definitely captured it. But to put a question to both of you, over this time, what's changed in the film industry or what stayed the same? Hey, a lot of technology has changed, especially, I mean, I was in lighting and, the, you know, now LED lighting is coming in a huge way. Uh, it was just starting to come in when I retired. I worked with a few of those lights on the back had a screen and a menu and buttons to push, which is like baffling to me. <laughs> uh, old dog, new tricks, you know, uh, and it's gone much further since I retired. And from what I hear from our mutual friend uh, who works on big, big, big movies, if anything, it seems to have gotten worse in some ways. I mean, the, the, the chaos and the plan, the organization just seems like it's, it's gone out the window. Um, people make split second decisions after armies of people have already done days of work to get ready. And they go, no, let's go do that now. And everybody gets shoved up against it. So, I mean, there's always been a certain amount of that in the film business. You're always reacting to circumstances on the ground, things that change, people dying, whatever. But I think in that way, it's probably gotten worse. You're right. That's always been a part of it. It's one of, that was one of my complaints in Below the Line as well. Directors making or designers making split second, you know, without any thought of the consequence of all of the people, everything that that's going to entail. But I would uh, say that things have, are just as bad as far as the industry exploiting local uh, labor in so-called states like Texas, which is a very anti-worker state. It calls itself a right to work state, you know, this Orwellian euphemism, which really means anti-union. And that's why they all were coming to Texas is because they could get us at half price and they could make money. It wasn't just the locations, you know, in many instances, it wasn't at all. That's why they were going to Louisiana. And of course, Louisiana famously, they cut the tax. They were so eager to, to cut taxes for their movie industry. They ended up losing money. Uh, from what I remember reading uh, from the, all the movies that flocked to Louisiana, because I remember people doing a lot of shows in Louisiana and then New Mexico, they went for labor there. And uh, and now, of course, Atlanta is a gigantic hub. I know that people are working there as locals as well. Uh, I should say, though, that in Texas, I was part of a union. It was already there. In fact, I said some bad things about it in the book and I feel bad about it because what I didn't put in the book is that I eventually joined that union, uh, Local 484, I believe it was. And uh, it was one of the best things I'd ever done. It was the first time I'd ever had healthcare in my life. They took some money, you know, a very little small amount of money on my check to start a pension, which God knows I wish I'd hung on to that little bit of pension that I had there. Uh, and uh, I brought a lot of my anti-union or scared of union friends I brought a lot of them into the union uh, with me. All right. And in Texas, we had to be smart about it because we knew the reason they were here was because they were getting cheaper labor. I believe what they ended up doing is try to create a kind of sliding scale. So if it was a big budget thing, like I worked on horrifically bad movie, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective 2. Again, horrible film, but I made great money on it. And uh, we had a sliding scale, you know, so like a movie like that, we would hope that they would give us a decent wage and not exploit us to it. But if it was a lower budget independent film, right? And we knew that this was some smaller director who was really, you know, then people would not try to get as much money as if we would if it was a Malpazo, you know, Clint Eastwood film coming to town or something like that. But I would argue that it's, that's still a primary directive of any film. 
uh, is to make profit. You know, the old the old quote uh, from it's attributed to Lily Tomlin, you know, that it's called show business. You know, they don't call it show art. It's a business. That's another thing that I was disillusioned about and below the line. And I talk about which I think a lot of people end up going into the industry because they they maybe want to make films themselves. I know I've met a lot of people that wanted to maybe be a director themselves or they wanted to write movies or they wanted to be an actor. And while they were trying to pursue those dreams, they ended up working as an as assistant in props and making pretty good money and then becoming a prop master and getting married and having kids. And then you're part of the business then and you ended up, you never did become a, a screenwriter. You never did become a director or an actor or a stunt person. You ended up at that level, a lot of times that level where you went in. And that was one of the reasons that, that scared the crap out of me too is I would look at older scenic artists and I was like, I don't want to be that guy. And then I would look at production designers that I admired too. And I was like, well, yeah, I could maybe be that guy. But if so, I would have to care about the movie in a way that that I maybe don't have to care about as much at my lower level. But as I say in the book, I realized at one point is that who's pretending more? Who's, who's telling the bigger lie? The production designer who's who's buying polo ponies and pretending that he enjoys working on heaven and hell, that he actually believes in the script? Or me pretending to give a shit that I have to paint 40 styrofoam tombstones for the, the, the graveyard scene? And as I said in the book, the more important question is which lie pays more? It's probably better to, to do the job where, you, where I, you know, to be the designer and, and pretend to like the script. It was an illuminating moment for me to just try to realize, okay, do I want to stay in this and try to rise up? But also I could see that, oh, this isn't a fun, creative endeavor where we're all just contributing our creative idea. This is being run like a rigid military hierarchical system, which as I say in Below the Line, it has to be. You have to have a hierarchical system to throw 75 strangers together to launch this gigantic leaking ship that is any movie, you know? I mean, if you didn't have a hierarchy, you know, it, it would be difficult to get any movie made. So that, I think that's something that it's like, if you want to be in the artistic creative end, then go ahead and become a director. Nowadays, I, I think that it's it's better, the industry, as far as the creative end, and that because of technology, if you do want to direct or write, you can just do it. You, you can actually just yeah. go ahead and do those things now. Whereas in the past, you know, you had to raise thousands of dollars to, just to get the, the film together to shoot it. Maybe there's a positive on the creative end uh, that's changed. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that the, the digital technology, you know, like in that sense, it's liberated people, you know. Right. Now, whether they're going to make any money off it or all that, I mean, who, who knows? But who knows? Uh, make a living. Right. Sooner or later, we do have to make a living. But you're right. And the whole thing about once you get in, you know, moving up is tough because you want to jump up. You got to leave that comfortable slot behind. You were able to pay your rent or your mortgage or pay for your kid's school or whatever. And to take that leap of faith and say, well, now I'm going to go become a DP or something and work one day a month instead of eight, eight, nine, ten days a month. It's pretty scary. Right. And there's, as I say, in Bloodline, there's always somebody there to replace you, too. You know, there's there, there's always somebody right there in the pipeline uh, if you don't. And, you know, that's I talk about that in the book that that there's an inherent insecurity that I that you see in, in throughout the entire film industry. And you can talk to actors about this, directors, but it, it's always a sort of what have you done for me lately or what have you done lately kind of thing. 
And I think it's in the inherent nature of the business that you're constantly being fired. You lose your job after every show. And also there's a lot of insecurity there. So I know people that still worry, even though they have worked on so many movies for so many years. And yet once that show is shutting down, they're like, oh, you know, should I leave two weeks early and jump on this other one? But I don't want to piss off my leave my guy here in, in trouble. Yeah. You know, I've got to make sure I leave a best boy or somebody who can keep finish this out for me. And, and you know, and then as, as an actor, I'm sure I'm positive that actors are often extremely insecure people. Well, you know, a lot of times they're insecure. So they've got it even worse. And I would think, mm-hmm. you know, like what happens if once your movie you work so hard on and you took a chance on and you expose yourself and yet it does, it's a flop and no, the critics don't like it, doesn't make any money. You know, are you going to get another job? So there's this built-in inherent insecurity, both above the line, I would argue, and below the line in the industry that makes it difficult, that makes it a, a difficult business. Some people would say that industry is based on creativity and that's true to a certain extent, but it's also based on fear. Exactly yeah. what you say, because everybody's replaceable and every job is temporary. And especially for actors. I mean, I, I wrote a post on that called The Hardest Job on Set, which is about actors, precisely huh? because of that. You know, it's all hard. Our work is all hard. We've all done the work, our various jobs, and it's all hard. But at least if you did your job, you're okay. Actors, you're out there with 30, 40, 50, 60 people watching you and the cameras and the lights in that moment. You better be good. And if you're not, you may not work again. You know, I, I make fun of some actor. He passed away, I think, Robert Urich or something. I make fun of him in one terrible TV movies working on. And I'm, I, I was trapped inside of a set while he was shooting some scenes and he flirting with the makeup girls or something. And, but I watched him do a couple of takes and it was just so cheesy. It was just, you know, he, as he limped out the door and said, Hey, you know, I'm okay to his kids or whatever. And I was like, you know, maybe this acting thing isn't that difficult. You know, when you see some of the, the, the cheesy, you know, one take work, but then when you see, I remember watching Robert Duvall, I'm a huge fan of his and remember watching him on the set of Lonesome Dove and just really seeing why he's such a great actor. You know, he would do, you know, three takes and you know, that, that was enough. You could just tell that he knew more about it, I guess, maybe than the director did sometimes, you know. But they really put themselves out there in a way that, you know, a lot of people think they can be actors, you know, but there's this special quality, certain thing that they have. I I talk about it in Below the Line. I have a guy who says that actors are really somewhat insane. And the only time that they're really sane is when they're acting, when they're (laughs) when they're in front of the camera, when they're pretending that's when they're most comfortable (laughs) and being normal versus when they're not in front of a camera. Well, they do have a way of focusing their energy on one thing in that moment. I mean, like if you're just talking to an actor in between takes or or offset, they have a way of focusing on you and you kind of feel like you're the only person in the world, not light shining on you. And I think they bring that to the camera. And that's just that's a special thing. I mean, I don't know how they do that. I really don't. That's a great uh, manipulative personality tool as well (laughs) that that anybody can use in the film industry. You're so important. Your opinion is just so important to me. And you're you're so right. You're so right about all these things. I talk about uh, ass kissing as an art form and below the line as well. And I say that if I say so myself, I, I was pretty good at it. I, I really learned how to kiss ass and kiss ass well. I, um, it's such a personality-driven business that in some instances it was easy. It was just basically some guy knew I was a writer and he wanted to be a writer. So all I had to do is be interested in his 
stories that he told me about wanting to be a writer, even though I didn't believe he was ever going to be a writer in his life. But I would sure act, oh, that's a great idea. Oh, yeah, you should you should write that down. You you should really do, you know, and I I didn't mean any of that, but <laughs> I I did I did get a lot of work with that individual. I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of that which I, I, I make fun of it in terms of the movie Catch-22, that one of my favorite films, uh, Catch-22, where uh, they say to Yossarian, Buck Henry says to him at one point, they say, uh, uh, we just want you to like us. Yeah. To, to, at the, and, and it's like the worst thing that they could really ask him, you know? And, and that's, I say that in blow, I'm like, it's not enough that I'm doing my job and all this. I got to be your friend too off the set or... You know, I really do. I really have to laugh at your jokes also, you know, and that was another problem that I had with the industry. It's like, you know, that sort of phony aspects, which can drive you nuts. It was also important to be, to find a crew that you could work with where you actually liked everybody. Right. Where they told funny jokes and where you didn't have to do as much of that as you say, you know, because you're right. That's a problem. I, I agree completely. And, and I'm, again, I was painting a more negative picture in below the line and, I still have friends in the industry and I met a lot of really nice people that wasn't even, you know, you didn't have to do any of that kind of crap. The movie uh, Flesh and Bone, the chapter about that, that's more indicative actually of a lot of my uh, experiences. You know, I, I had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of friends working uh, in the business. That was one of the reasons I think I got so much work is um, I could hustle and I did have a lot of contacts and I had a lot of friends. I had a lot of people that I did enjoy working with. I hung around with them after work, you know, <laughs> you know, we'd all go get drunk or whatever. And if we got off early enough on a Saturday night. Well, let me put to both of you whether or not it's possible that by illuminating some of these situations of what goes on on set and capturing it in print, whether that itself can lead to some change to make things better, or are we just capturing it and that's the way things are always going to be? That's a good question, Mike. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think anything I've written is going to change anything. Uh, about the only thing I really tried to do was let the newbies know, the people who are interested in getting in the business, what they were getting into. Not try to be too negative, but tell them, look, it's really, really hard. You have to really, really want it. You have to push harder than you maybe have ever pushed before, but it can be worth it. Of course, then years later, your body gets hammered. You know, it, it takes a toll and you're going to you're going to pay a price for that. And I just tried to be honest with them. I would answer that question by saying that I I wasn't trying to change anything. I write for very personal reasons. When I write a book, I, I try to go through something and then learn something in the process of trying not to sound too pretentious here, but learn something in that process of discovery and going through it on the page as I write it, but also trying to maintain basic conventional narrative elements. In other words, to try to tell a story and keep it moving and keep it interesting. So in writing Below the Line, I was just trying to go through my own disillusionment really with seeing the man behind the curtain and being disappointed with myself really in a way and that I love movies and yet I realized at the end of the book that this is basically just a business like any other business. When I wrote my book, Drugs, I was going through my experiences with drugs and I was trying, hopefully by the end of that book, when the reader reads it, they'll feel whatever I discovered, the changes that I, I went through. The same thing with the Jughead, same thing with my latest book, Bad Jobs and Poor Decisions, just me talking about my 20s, you know? And it, so it's very, it's always really personal with me. That said, uh, I just got the rights back to below the line. I'm not really sure what to do with it because I've had many young people tell me, total strangers contact me as well 
and say, uh, this book should be required reading in uh, freshman film classes because it just really shows you what it's like, you know, to be on set. And I've had people that work in the business write me an email out of the blue and say, God, I wish I'd read this before I worked on the last, you know, 15 shows. I don't know. Maybe I'll try to get it back out there uh, again. I'm always thinking about my next book. So I'm working on, I'm trying to finish two other books right now that I've been working on for years. So I haven't thought about, I mean, I, I looked at Blow the Line again to talk with you, Skip. <laughs> and I did, a, I did a lecture for a film studies course uh, for UTSA where I teach the other day. But that's the first time I'd looked at Blow the Line in years. Uh, and it still made me laugh, at least. So that's a good sign. To me, that's always a good sign. If, you're, if you can go back into something that makes you if, you, if you don't feel ashamed of it, if you still think it's funny or interesting, then you've succeeded, whether you've sold any copies or not. <laughs> Well, I'm one who agrees. I think it should be required reading in film schools. I mean, I picked up a copy, I think it was last year. I have a couple of copies just to find a line. I wanted to I remember the line and I read the line and then I read the whole book again because I couldn't stop because <laughs> it's that good a story, that good a narrative. I mean, it's, it's terrific. It's really good. And there's a lot of truth in there too. Well, thanks, Mike. I, I really appreciate that. That means a lot. Well, and again, I enjoyed the book. I think um, as Mike says, there's a lot of truth, a lot of insight, and there's also a lot of laughs. It's a fun read all the way through, JR. JR, if people want to find the book, you said the rights are back to you. It's still out there though, right? Where, where can people go to find it? Oh or yeah, I mean, your other writing. Uh, I'm not, I'm a horrible business person. Uh, so <laughs> on my website for all of my books, I just put, I, whoever does it for me, I just put a link to Amazon, you know? So I don't want to plug Amazon. So <laughs> you can go to any other independent seller and probably find it as well. But it's, it, there's copies still circulating out there. And then all, all my, my other books had big, you know, Random House distributes the Jughead and drugs and ww norton published bad jobs and poor decisions a couple years ago well what is your website jr jrhelton.com i have links to my books on there so if people are interested that that'd be great mike we're both encouraging you to bring your blog post into a book yourself it's a lot of good stuff there as well until that happens where can people go to to follow the blog Google Hollywood Juicer or uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tedium will take you there. But I, I think the website is uh, hollywoodjuicer.blogspot.com. Personally, I recommend people, if, if they go, the older stuff is better. That's what I'm going to base the book on. And you can find some of that. If you go to the website, you see a picture of these tattered, battered gloves. And underneath that, it says, new to this site, click here and scroll down. That'll take you to a post that has what I once assembled as sort of the greatest hits. I haven't updated that in years. But if you don't like any of those, then don't even go further. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a pretty good introduction yeah, to the blog. And, and, 700 posts. Yeah, and people from, will so. like it. Well, for people in the industry, they'll see themselves in the writing. For people who are interested in the industry, it's worth checking out. Guys, thanks for being here today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Skid. Yeah, thanks, Skid. Good to see you, JR. Take care, brother. You too, man. Listeners, thanks for being you. Please subscribe if you haven't already, and why not rate us wherever you get your podcast? It helps us reach new listeners. New listeners, it's easy to peruse all of our back episodes at the website, below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also listed on IMDb, so it's easy to cross-reference the film credits of my guests. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Be safe and join us again next week on Below the Line.